White is best known as the top-selling author of so-called Grit Lit, the mysteries with a paranormal twist set in the South, like her Trad Street series set in Charleston, South Carolina, or Family Sagas in Georgia. Her latest book, in contrast, Last Night in London, is, as the title suggests, A Departure, the first book she set outside of the South. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Karen talks about why she wants the full gamut of human emotion in her stories, laughter as well as tears, love as well as hate. And she shares how she confronted the dark period of her career when she almost gave up writing fiction altogether. But before we get to Karen, I've got exciting news to share. I've been posting these author interviews weekly since September 2017, and there are currently 170 binge reading chats online where top authors talk about their books. Launching next week, we're expanding the show to give listeners who love what we do a chance to subscribe to Binge Reading on Patreon in return for extra monthly bonus content and a wealth of other benefits. Joining Patreon gives you the chance to find even more great books you won't want to put down, as well as get to know your favourite authors better, while at the same time helping our team create more fantastic content. For the cost of a cup of coffee, you'll join a community of bookaholics and get monthly exclusive content, including seasonal updates by genre, top thrillers, top beach reads and so forth, all for subscribers only. It won't affect our normal weekly podcast. It will still go out just as usual. It's for people who are interested in extra bonus content and joining a community and being more closely involved with the show. To find out more, head to the joysofbingereading.com homepage. We've got quite a bit more there to say. But now, here's Karen. Hello there, Karen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Look, Karen, you've got more than 30 books published, so a fantastic backlist. And it's a mix of best-selling and award-winning historic fiction, mystery with paranormal twist, and women's fiction. Quite a, quite a mix there. But it would be fair to say that they've probably all got one thing in common, and that is that they are emotional family stories, or there's a lot of emotion built into them, isn't there? Yes, I like to write the kind of books that I like to read, and I like to read books that are, you know, that that really pull on all the the heartstrings. I want to make you laugh, but if I make you cry or if I make you think, that's you know, that's a bonus as well because that's real life. That's you know, that's that's what we're all going through. Yeah, yeah. Now your latest book, it's just on the verge of being published um, in the U.S. is The Last Night in London, a time slip story moving between the present day and wartime London. You said up a web of fascinating links between two women, one a fashion journalist in 1940s London and the other a New York photojournalist. And it's quite surprising that the fashion industry even continued during that very chaotic period of the war. But tell us about the genesis for the story. 
There were many, because this this has sort of been playing in the back of my head for many years. So I, I really got my start, well, I, my first two books were historical fiction, but both set in the, the American South. And then I, I, I switched to contemporary fiction, and I wrote all set in the South. And there were two of my most popular books, uh, Falling Home and After the Rain, that were published in the early 2000s. And I thought I was done with those books, but over the last decade, I have been getting so many fan mail and emails from uh, readers who are asking me what happened to Maddie Warner. So Maddie Warner, she's a 14-year-old girl, the daughter of the family, this large, boisterous Southern family in a small Southern town in Georgia in Falling Home. And then it's four years later. So she's an 18-year-old young woman graduating from high school, getting ready to go to college or university, wherever you are, that's what you call it. And, you know, her, her life is ahead of her, although she's had some sad things happen in her past and her future is not all that certain. So I left it at that because I thought those stories were told. But People keep asking what happened to Maddie Warner. And I love that character. She was this, you know, I love the whole cast of characters from both those books. And I, I wanted to go back. I just, I just didn't know. And then the other thing is I lived in London for seven years. I lived in this beautiful Edwardian building on Regent's Park. My father was with Exxon, so that's why we were there. I loved, I loved the history of it. The day we moved in, I remember the porter telling us, that the reason why some of the the, the windows um, were just plain glass instead of the beautiful leaded glass that so many other the windows had was because during the Blitz they had been they, there had been nearby bombings and they had been shattered and I just you know I wasn't a writer then I had no intention of being a writer that's something I kind of fell into later on but I just you know I, I was a reader and I I had an active imagination and of course I could not sleep at night in the, that building without wondering about the lives that had transpired, uh, you know, since it was built in 1904, and, you know, during, and during the Blitz, my goodness. And, you know, for the first time, I'd always loved history. My father was a history buff. And so he and I shared that love. It truly was my first experience with holding history in my hands. It made it personal to me. And, you know, my mother was from Southern Mississippi. And I remember when we moved to London, you know, people laughing at her accent and really giving her a hard time. And I, I couldn't, you know, we lived other places as expatriates, but I just, you know, I just love those fish out of water stories. So I would, you know, I wanted to tell the story of a Southerner in London. And I thought, well, my goodness, I've never written a book set in London. I, you know, I was waiting for the right story, the right character. And of course it happened with Maddie Warner and my building in London, because both, both the historic period and the contemporary period in the book are set in my flat in London. Yes, and it's wonderful, actually, because this book does have quite a sense of the Georgia family and what a Southern family is like, even though there's only a tiny bit of it that's actually located in in the South. Most of it takes place in London, but the phone calls from home, et cetera, et cetera, are always intruding into the scene. So you still get quite a strong sense of those family links. And I must admit, After I'd read this one, I just had to go back and read Falling Rain. I just wanted to know more about this family. So I think you're probably going to get quite a few readers who are going to do that, go back to the earlier books as well. I hope so. And, you know, I'm I'm making it very clear that this this is not a sequel. You do not have to have read Falling Home and After the Rain to read this book and, and, and know who people are and what's going on. And there's actually another character, a main character, Precious DuBose, who... Mm 
Her genesis was from, I write collaborations with two other New York Times bestselling authors, Lauren Willig and Beatrice Williams. We had a book out last year called All the Ways We Said Goodbye and set in Paris during three different time periods. And we meet Precious DuBose for the first time. It's 1964. So, you know, and she hints, she's a beloved character in that book. We got lots of reader mail about her and, you know, but she hints at a past from her warriors that she doesn't want to talk about, but but there's a lingering sadness there and you don't know what that story is. So in The Last Night in London, we see Precious again and we get to know that past. And we also get to meet her now as a woman about to turn 100, sharing her story with Maddie. It's diverting a weenie bit from The Last Night, but when you wrote that part of All the Ways We Say Goodbye, did you know yourself what Precious's backstory was or did you have to get to grips with creating that after the other book came out? Uh, you know, because we we write that book together and we don't we don't admit who writes what part, but oh okay. so yeah, and, and, and we and we each, you know, we add so much to each character that when, you know, I think we we all decided together because I wanted, I needed a character like Precious DuBose in the book that I was working on at the same time. And both, you know, Beatrice and Lauren said, well, you know, you why don't you use Precious? Because, you know, and so at that point, I didn't know what that background was. And the ending had already been written for all the ways we said goodbye. And then we'd gotten together to sort of just, you know, do the final read through and discuss it. And we came up with this amazing plot twist that had to do with Precious. So I'm not going to give anything away. So people who want to read that book, that really tells you what the big deal was um, in World War II with Precious. So, you know, to to see her now, I think it's, and, and just to see her look over her life and all the things that happened at that point and sort of, you know, talk about it to Maddie and share what she'd learned and what she regretted and all of that. I think it's, it's just, it's such a fascinating way to, to write about a character. Yeah. And, and it raises an interesting issue. I mean, it's wonderful that you're friends, but that's really shared IP that they have now allowed you to take on and use in something else, isn't it? Right. Which is really quite an interesting thing that's developing with this whole new publishing world. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I know both Beatrice, Lauren and I, we, you know, it's like, oh, I need, you know, Beatrice, she has a, a they're not a series or just, you know, they have interlocking characters and that's uh, the Schuyler family. And, and, you know, I know Lauren has um, more than once said, oh, I need, you know, I need somebody um, in New York City at this time. And so she'll say, okay, I'm going to borrow this character. And, not, you know, they're just like, they're kind of placeholder. They're not like main characters, of course, those belong to the author, but it, it kind of makes this fictional world very, very real. And several times in different books we have used characters or dropped a name or whatever just you know and and made reference to them because it's it's so much fun to do and all three of us have included a law firm called Willie Williams and White which is our three last names you know <laughs> not everybody catches it but when they do they go ah, I saw it yeah <laughs> oh that's great fun look Maddie in the Last Night in London is a photojournalist who's commissioned to do a piece on wartime fashions for a museum exhibition. And this is how she discovers Precious still alive, just about to celebrate her 100th birthday. But in the course of the book, there's wonderful detail about the fashion items, the gowns that they choose for the exhibition, the shoes, the bags. And in fact, there's an evening bag that plays quite a significant part in the story. 
Was that side of it fun to research? Have you done fashion stuff before? I have not. My link to beautiful, beautiful gowns and fashion was from my grandmother's trunks in her Mississippi house. So my grandmother had five daughters growing up in the 50s in the Deep South. If you can even imagine the dresses they have. And my grandmother (laughs) saved them all with tissue and all this other thing. And I just, you know, the long gloves and you know, the handbags, the head fashions, everything. I, you know, my cousins and I, my girl cousins and I would just be ecstatic, you know, when we'd go visit our grandmother because she would let us put them on and it was, you know, our own little fashion show. So I've always had, you know, an interest. And then I came across, I can't even remember, I was, while I was researching this book, because I don't always, in fact, I rarely know really what's going to happen in a book. And I didn't even know about the fashion angle until I was researching other stuff about London during the 30s and 40s. And I came across a novel and I want to give you the title of it. It should be, it's not, no, I've, I've already put those books away, but it was a novel written in the late 30s about a girl getting, you know, just a um, live, you know, working class family. And she gets a job working as a model for a small fashion house. And I read it. I mean, that, I mean, that's where I got so much of that, you know, what the models are talking about and how they got changed and ready for a show and what that felt like. That was incredible because it was written during the time, you know, so how much things cost and all of that, you know, she gets a, an apartment or a flat and, you know, has a roommate and how much that costs. And it was just, it was such a, you know, an eye opener. And then I, at the same time, I came across, it's a coffee table book that had been written to go along with an exhibition somewhere, you know, one of the art museums in London, and it was called Fashion in, oh, and again, I have it somewhere, Fashion in an Age of Crisis or something like that. And and it was, and it showed all these, you know, these gorgeous gowns. And I mean, I was just shocked that, you know, this was... This was wartime, but, you know, people were still dancing. People were, I mean, they had to be more careful about it. And, you know, but there was also the romance of it, you know, the men in uniform and the, you know, we always like to romanticize war there. You know, there's nothing less romantic than war. But, you know, back then, I guess maybe it was that edge of danger. And they did. They would go to to the Café de Paris, you know, and which is in the book. And, you know, that's a real place. And it really was hit by a bomb. And, you know, lots of people died and they continued to dance you know, and it was the thing to go out and be glamorous. And it really was an exciting kind of time. And I was just mesmerized by both these books that this, this glamorous life could, could, could continue in such a fraught time, such a dangerous time. In the book, it almost feels like being, being that way, celebrating and continuing to look beautiful is a way to respond to Hitler, to to show him that they're not going to give in sort of thing. There's definitely that undercurrent in it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, you know, the red lipstick, that because, you know, Hitler didn't want any, you know, hated makeup on women. And I'd like to think that, you know, that was part of the, the British people's way of saying, you know, go away. You know, I, I, I'll, I wanted to say an expletive, but I won't because... 
<laughs> but for a general audience. But, you know, the whole, all of Europe was was looking at England as their last hope. There's a fabulous book that I read while writing Last Hope Island by Lynn Olson. It is nonfiction, but it was all about how Europe fell, how the exiled governments were all in London. And Winston Churchill was like, okay, so we're being bombed. Just keep calm and carry on. And, you know, the people did that. And that meant putting on your red lipstick. It meant curling your hair. It meant, you know, if you can't get nylons then you're going to, you know, same in the States, you're going to draw, you know, draw the line down the back of your, your legs and you would make do because you were doing it for the boys, you know, basically, you know, yeah. it's very sexist now, but you know, back then women were not allowed into combat. So, you know, that, that was our way of showing Hitler and, and showing a support for the boys and, and also doing, doing our part. And by our, I meant females, you know, they really played such a large part in uh, the war effort and, you know, they, they did their best to look good while doing it. Yeah. There's even a hint that the government is really in favor of this because of the improved morale when there are lovely women around. I know. And again, very sexist, but you know, it worked. And there is something, and, and I'm going to try, I'm trying not to mess this up, but Vogue magazine continued to put out magazines throughout the war, you know, even with the paper shortage and everything else, because the government knew that keeping women excited about fashion and try, you know, they might make their own, you know, clothes out of whatever they had to look fashionable. But that was like they knew keeping up the women's morale would also help with the war effort because they were looking good for the guys. So, you know, I just thought it would also keep the economy going because they would, you know, try to buy what they could, you know, and then make do, you know, trying to look like these fashion models in Vogue magazine. Yeah. One of the things that I loved uh, listening to Falling Home on video, in, on audio particularly, although it's the same in this book, is your, your good way that you pick up on colloquial speech. Of course, there's wonderful southernisms that, <laughs> that are in Falling Rain. But in the last night, you've got the same thing with the British, the British little gem ways that they talk. I mean, with the, the Falling Home, it was things like Dag Nabbit, which I'd never heard before, oh, really? and this dog won't hunt and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular ear for, for conversation? Are you one of those people who sits in cafes and eavesdrop? Oh, oh, most definitely. And I also have a really, I get maybe because I'm a musician, I'm one of those people I could sit in a crowded cafe and there could be just some faint music playing on the sound system and I will be able to pick it out, sing along to the lyrics, tell you when it came out and what the title of the song is and who sings it. You know, I just I just have a good ear and I think it is because I'm a musician. I also can mimic accents. I'm not I'm not going to try my Kiwi accent right now, okay, because it's not practiced, <laughs> but I can do a Cockney really well and when I oh, when I lived in London, my goodness, I yes, I just not only do I listen to what they're saying but how they're saying it and you know like my favorite was you know from commercials you know walls pork sausages I could do a whole commercial with my cockney accent and you know I've actually been complimented by a London cab driver and yes you know my mother's family and my dad they are both from Mississippi and you don't get any more southern than Mississippi you know I live kind of all around the world so my my accent you know even though I've lived in Georgia now for almost 29 years my accent is you know when I'm around southern people it gets a little twangy but oh my goodness yes listening 
to my cousins. I mean, I remember a copy editor from New York was doing the copy edits for it might have been Falling Home. It is Falling Home because Sam says something like, he's, <laughs> this is kind of rude, but it's in the book and it is a thing. He's like a booger you can't thump off. And the copy editor was like, there's no way somebody would say this. And I'm like, yeah, call my call my cousin Nathan, you know, because that's where I heard it, you know. Um, and, an- and another one, I got a comment from this book. It's when you know they're back in Georgia. Somebody says, or I think it's Maddie says, you know, is a bug's is, is a frog's butt watertight. And this reader loved it so much, she sent me an email, and I made coasters with that in it. I'm going to send her some because I think. It's- <laughs> I think that, I think that this one was also in, and that's he's slicker than pig snot on a radiator. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it was in the last night of London, although or falling home. But it I couldn't, couldn't quite remember it though, because you know once you get into deep south, I mean people. <laughs> And, you know, that dog won't hunt. I've heard that, you know, recently, you know, that's just like, it's not going to work, you know? And um, yeah. 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 Look, it's great that we've moved on to talking about the South because you've got a whole lot of very popular mysteries, the Trad Street mysteries. Mm -hmm. Now, Trad Street with the double D for those who aren't really familiar with Charleston and the South, but it's Southern fiction with a paranormal twist and Trad Street is one of Charleston's most historic streets and it features a psychic realtor called Melanie Middleton. And you have said online, I thought it was amusing, that you can't confirm or deny that Melanie is an exaggerated version of yourself, <laughs> is or not, is or not. <laughs> yeah, I will neither confirm nor deny. No, just no, not going there. <laughs> It was quite striking to me that I saw it described as low country. And to me, immediately low country means the Netherlands. And I actually didn't realise that that part of the States also had that that description. So it's quite low lying. Yes, it's below sea level, which is why it does tend to have a a, a real tendency to to flood. You know, it's that's why hurricanes are always, you know, so feared on that in that part of the country. And that, yes. Yeah, so, except instead of having the lovely areas that you're familiar with as being low country, low country means lots of mosquitoes, you know, lots of snakes, <laughs> alligators, you know, but I think that just makes it so much richer. Maybe it's my Southern heritage, but I love that. I love the smell of the swamp and, and, you know, the, I love all of that. And there's a thing called pluff mud, which is basically the marsh mud, at, you know, at low tide. And it has this very pungent, smell. And my, my husband, who is from New York, says it smells like sewage. And to me, it smells like home. So I, I guess we'll never <laughs> live in the low country. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And is Trad Street still continuing or is it, has it come to an end of, end of its Well, summer? here's the story. So, you know, it was only supposed to be two books at the beginning. And then it was so popular, they asked me to write more and more and more and more. So the seventh and final book called The Attic on Queen Street will be out this November 2nd. So yes, I have two books out this year. And it will be the last in the Trad Street series. But we were getting so much, not slack, but just like, oh, please tell me it won't be the end of this series. And I was just like, well, you know, I need to let Jack and Melanie and all those characters rest and have a good life and let them alone, you know, because I keep on messing with them. So I thought, you know, I talked to my editor and my agent and we were, you know what, let's do a spinoff and let's set it in another 
fabulous southern city. So it's going to be set in New Orleans. And I'm taking one of the major secondary characters in the series, Nola, who's Melanie's stepdaughter. And she's going to be the main character in the spinoff series. The first is called The Shop on Royal Street. And it will be out in the fall of 2022. And that is the book I'm working on right now. And do you find that when you do a spinoff like that, that it gives you a whole fresh um, flush of creative energy to have a new character to work oh, with? Oh, yes. I'm I'm having so much fun. I have not had this much fun writing a book in a while. And I think also because I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. So I lived there for four years. I'm lots of friends there. It's it's another, you know, another, like with London, I'm coming home again. So it's, it, I'm very excited about writing about it, you know, in a post-Katrina world, because I went to school before it, I lived in New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina. So, you know, because I believe in suffering for my craft, I've already planned a uh, a getaway trip with my husband to New Orleans to do quote unquote research, you know, eat at all the restaurants and you know, do all that tough stuff, you know, or, but yeah, you know, I just need to get a feel of what it's like today because it's not the same as it was when it still has that charm. New Orleans has a vibe, just like Charleston has a vibe, very different, but very pungent and very, you know, it's, it's tangible. And I, and I, I yeah, love exploring fantastic. it. So. It sounds that you have a wonderful way of creating place. So I'm sure that it's it's as good as going there for people who can't travel. Well, I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So turning to Karen as reader, I always like to include this section because we are the joys of binge reading. And I'm hoping that people listen to us partly to get um, suggestions for new books they're going to love. What are you reading at the moment and what would you recommend to listeners? Oh my goodness. I've been doing so much reading, loving everything. I just, well, because, okay, where do I start? I just finished Stephanie Dre's The Chateau, The Women of Chateau Lafayette, amazing historical fiction, if you love historical fiction. And I also just finished reading Band of Sisters by Lauren Willig, also historical fiction, but World War I, about a true story that she actually discovered while researching all the ways we said goodbye. She was looking at Christmas customs in uh, World War I France, and she found this mention of this relief unit from Smith College and found a huge cache of letters, you know, which is a researcher's dream, and was able to create this lovely, lovely, amazing book. And then I just finished uh, listening to an audiobook because I'm a huge audiobook fan. It's called Ghosted by Rosie Walsh or Welsh, Walsh, I think. Oh my goodness, what a great writer. I, I had no idea. I mean, the characters are like, you're just feeling everything and there's so many twists and turns, but it has such an amazing ending. You, you just, you have no idea until the last page where it's going. And then you're like, oh, Okay, you know, but just I've never read her before. I've got got to find more books because it was fabulous. It's great. And that's exactly what the binge reading thing is all about, that when people find an author, they then can go and look for their backlist. And yeah, look at this stage of your career. If you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Mm, Golly, you know what? Even though I've been through some really, you know, downturns in the beginning of my career, I wouldn't change a thing because I think you need with everything in life. I think you need to have those down spots 
to really know, to really figure out what you want and, and, and your, your own worth and you have to fight for it. And if you're not going to fight for it, you know, you're never going to get out of that trough, but, but I did. And I, I, and I'm, do I ever want to go through that period again where, you know, I was dropped by my publisher. I didn't think I'd ever write again, but my agent was like, no, no, you know, that's, that's them, not you. You've got this great book and I'm going to sell it. And she did. And that was my first book with Penguin. And that's when my career really took off. And I'm just so grateful um, for that. But it was disheartening. I really almost stopped stopped writing because it was just, you know, I'd had four books under my belt, hadn't really gone anywhere. And I was just disheartened. But I learned. So, what so was much. that book that nearly saved your career? What was that one? The book that, uh, The Color of Light. And that was my first Low Country book set in Polly's Island, South Carolina. Oh, great, great. Wonderful. So what is next for Karen, the writer at this stage? What are you working on in terms of your current project? Well, so I'm starting that new series set in New Orleans and I have another idea. So I'm sort of in between contracts with Penguin because they were like, okay, we're ready for your next single title. And I was just having some other stuff going on in my life. I'm like, I just can't think right now. It was coronavirus. It was 2020. I'm just like, I can't even think. All I can do is think about the series. But when you're not thinking about something is when my best book ideas come to me and I have a doozy that I'm ready, ready to start. I'm going to put a phone call into my agent and see if we can go on. I can't tell you anything about it because before I've started, I I can't share anything. (laughs) So No, of course, I understand that. So at least we'll have two books from that series and they will be boom, boom, like 2022 and 2023. So those are my next two books. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I'm sure you do enjoy hearing from readers because everything you've said indicates your readers love to respond to you. Where can they find you online? The easiest place is my website, karen-white.com. And on there is all the links to my Instagram, which is at karenwhitewrite.com. W-R-I-T-E. My Twitter's also at Karen White Wright, W-R-I-T-E. And Facebook, which is author Karen White. And are you active on social media? Um, Because you kind of have to be, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? If I had nothing to do all day but be on social media, I would love it. I would have so much fun. But you know what? It is the rabbit hole of the day because once you get started, that's it. You look up, it's four hours later. You're like, oh my gosh, what have I just done? (laughs) That's so true. Well, look, thank you so much. It's been fabulous talking today and we'll look forward to that New Orleans series with a great deal of anticipation. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at 
gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.